So actually, I've been reading Isaiah Berlin, and his he has this kind of long treatise on uh, po- you know, political ideas in the Romantic Age, which is somewhere around the turn of the 18th century, right? So like s- the Romantic period arguably started before 1800. Um, but it really, like, it sort of really took root in the early decades of the 1800s in Europe. But, I mean, arguably before that, you had German thinkers and you had, uh, you know, Coleridge and so on, who were kind of the precursors to the new, the modern poets, Shelley and Keats and so on. And, um, but, it, but so, right, and so, but the, it was interesting because the Enlightenment which was, you know, the last century before, and then the French Revolution, which was 1789. The French Revolution was interesting because it was a, it was kind of like, it was the practical working out of the consequences of enlightenment thinking with, uh, you know, with Rousseau's politics, basically. I mean, this is a simplification, but basically what... What you had in the French Revolution was this idea that people could solve their own problems if we could just get rid of superstition and irrational stuff of all stripes. And if we could just, you know, the triumph of reason, right? Like Kant said famously, dare dare to think for yourself or something. I think it translates as. But I mean, the big thing was, so the there were two strands of the enlightenment and they actually never fit together. The political strand was something like you read, you know, the, in your natural, like nature itself provides it, Nature itself is rational and we being a part of nature, we are rational. And so if we just look into, if we are, if we just clearly and rationally investigate and sort of commune with nature, uh, we will discover the moral principles that we need to live the good life. So the good life, and this actually, this idea goes all the way back to Plato. And it's one of the original philosophical ideas that to figure out what the good life is, you just clear away all the clouds and nature itself sort of contains the moral, the, the, the moral framework for living a good life is actually just by interrogating nature because nature itself is a harmonious, rational whole. And so like once you sort of get close enough to nature and you do this basically by reason, right? By applying reason rather than emotions and so on and passions, right? Once you get clear of your own emotions and passions and you get a clear rational picture that's given to you and assured to you because of nature and you're part of nature, then you're good to go. And you can actually build the individual notion of a good life off of that and you can build the collective notion of politics. Now, Rousseau gave us the politics par excellence. What he did was, of course, he said, look, part of the problem is, is that civilization is so corrupting, right? So, the, you know, he posits this original pristine um, state of nature where everybody's kind of simple-minded, not stupid, but just uncomplicated un- and, and sort of, you know, naive and simple, but living in a state of basic harmony with nature. And then on the heels of basically, I mean, in his version of the state of nature, which was just 
rinse and repeat, like just blueprinted everywhere. Um, although he came after Locke and Hobbes, obviously. But like, so the state of nature, though, so you really should say that, you know, Rousseau copied the earlier state of nature theorizers. Um, but the, the state of nature is, is pretty much always when people speculate about it. I mean, actually, Rousseau was the one who said this in particular, that agriculture spurred the need for hierarchies and autocratic government and bureaucracy. And then that had a really, that had a profound deleterious effect on our ability, our, you know, our, it clouded and obfuscated our natural ability to be in a harm, be in harmony with nature. Uh, that's basically what Rousseau said. So what you have to do to get to sort of figure out how to live the good life is to find a way to um, shield yourself against the corrupting forces that are just is society and keeps getting worse, by the way. So this idea of progress that we take for granted, Rousseau said like, yeah, it's just going to keep getting worse actually, unless we, um, you know, unless we take certain steps to guard against it. But the step, the main step that you need to take is like I said, is just to, is just to shield yourself against these corrupting influences from urban complicated civilization and all the structures and strictures that are put into place to, to get people um, you know, to, to not kill each other, basically, in the Hobbesian sense. So, so he said, and once you do this, what, there's this wonderful thing that happens because nature is a harmonious whole. And this idea really was, this is, this is an idea that was certainly adopted by the Enlightenment, but it really is part and parcel of Western philosophy going all the way back. But, you know, once everybody makes this effort to get, to get sort of rationally connected to the world around them, it turns out that all the individual wills co uh, coalesce into one general will. So what everybody would, would ideally want if they were rational is what actually makes the entire social project work. Because everybody's going to coincide and somehow magically we're not going to have this, diverse, this diversity of opinion that leads to you know, my, my, my will is frustrated by my neighbors because we want different things. turns out that we're all going to basically want the same stuff. He doesn't mean in the superficial sense of like, I want, you know, I, I want oatmeal and you want, you know, raisin bran. He means like in the, in the sense that we're, we're pursuing kind of philosophically in a more fundamental level, all the same objectives. Once we're aligned rationally with this rational harmonious nature, then all the wills turn out to coincide, and then there, we have this general will. And with Rousseau, it was never clear whether the it's never really clear whether he meant that the general will was some kind of weird, you know, almost quasi-metaphysical thing, or whether it was just the sum total of. And he would because in part it's unclear, it's unclear exactly what he meant by he made so he spilled so much ink over the idea of the general will. But in part, it's unclear what he meant by it because he was always ambivalent about scientific materialism. You know, he was, he was never, like, there was, there was something about Rousseau that he could never sort of swallow the real hardcore, you know, Holbach and, and Demetre and, like, these, these, these real hardcore scientific materialists who said, 
you know, basically everything is just matter and it's just a fiction that you have freedom. And I think one of the philosoph- one of the obvious philosophical reasons that Rousseau couldn't be a really uh, dyed in the wool scientific materialist like that uh, is, uh, and neither could Voltaire, by the way. A lot of, many people in the Enlightenment were caught up on this point, and I'm going to get to why it's important in a second. But is one of the reasons because he, you know Rousseau thought that the ultimate thing was freedom. Right? Like there's just nothing more important to the human life than to be free. And there's nothing more tragic than a human, that, a human life that is lived in chains in one way or another. That was his push, his vehement opposition to the corrupting influences of civilization. And it was also his opposition to any kind of, of uh, uh, you know, despotism, right? Because, you know, it's freedom, really, that's the ultimate good in the human life. Now, if freedom is the ultimate good in the human life, it's the, the, the greatest good, the sunum bonum, right? Sumum bonum. If that's the case, then it seems rather at odds with some of the more thoroughgoing materialistic um, positions that were propounded that came out of the Enlightenment. And, and in fact, Rousseau's dilemma was the Enlightenment's dilemma. Uh, it was just brought, I think, to more, it was brought into more sharp relief with Rousseau because he made such a big deal of freedom being the ultimate desirable good uh, in the human life that, you know, when you have, when you have that, when you when you have that much concern for freedom, it's a little curious when you have a, a system, you know, when you have on the other side uh, uh, of the, uh, you know, uh, the flip side of that is, is that you have this thoroughgoing materialism, which is totally deterministic. So you have like utter determinism and scientific materialism, particularly like prior to, I mean, you know, there's wiggle room perhaps with quantum mechanics, but when you have basically Newton is your model is totally deterministic. It's what gave rise to, to the uh, you know, what is it? The demon. What's his name's demon? That's what gave rise to all that thinking. Wait a minute. If you run these equations forward, if you take Newton, if you take uh, Newtonian physics and you run the equations that govern you know velocity and speed and um, as a function of time and so on, you run them forward and backwards and you get the same results. So it's just completely deterministic. It just flows through according to the values that you put into the variables. And so if that's actually the accurate picture of what's going on in the world, it's really hard to see what's going on with Rousseau's obsession with freedom. It seems like it's, a, it's illusory, right? So that, was a, so that was a problem that Rousseau, I don't think, ever really resolved. He, for his part, I think resolved it by not resolving it by not taking a, a very strong stance on what science actually meant, whether it was really this hardcore materialism or whether it was just some other version that left open, you know, the possibility of freedom. I don't think he really ever took that on systematically in his writings. Um, he was concerned, though. He was ultimately concerned with this problem that basically, okay, let me back up. What, what Rousseau hated was, was precisely what Locke and before him Hobbes 
had offered as the solution, which is you're going to have a trade-off between security and liberty, right? And so Hobbes' solution famously was you're going to lose basically all your liberty to get security because you're going to put that in the hands of the, you know, of the Leviathan, of the monarch, right? So he's saying like, look, nothing, nothing's worse than the state of nature. It's a war of all against all. You just have no security, and you can't get out of it. Every time your neighbor shows up, you know, you're wondering if he's going to drag off your wife and your daughter and, and, you know, burn all your fields. And there's just no way out of that. It's just going to keep going like that until somebody imposes order. And there's basically no way to impose order other than to give it up to somebody, almost sort of arbitrarily, to just elect a king. And the king then will impose order. And then because you entered into it voluntarily and contractually, you have a reason to obey it. But you get sort of a real, a, a real curtailment of your freedoms. Obviously, I mean, in a sense, you don't you don't really have you only have freedoms because they're granted. They're not real freedoms, but okay. Uh, and you know, but what you do get is you get the security to get you out of the war of all against all. Now, Locke had a, a more nuanced view of this, of course, and he thought of it more as a compromise where there's certainly many cases where you can take your freedom back from the government, from the leader, as it were. Um, you know, I mean, it, to, to Hobbes, a revolution or an insurrection is unthinkable, basically. It's just a violation of the contract, point blank. And to Locke, there are all kinds of reasons and all kinds of perfectly valid reasons why you might actually take your freedom back from the uh the government you know if it's if it's doing things that are contrary to your you know to to your best interests and so on then you know there are there are situations where i mean certainly the american revolution would like to at least would it certainly was motivated by lockean philosophy not hobbesian philosophy the american revolution whether or not Locke would agree with the conditions like well it's too much tax you know damn it you know, no taxation without representation sounds pretty philosophical, but stop. I don't want to pay you guys. You're over across the Atlantic. F off. That doesn't sound very philosophical. So, but that's a different issue. Um, but so, so yeah, so you look at, uh, you look at um, Rousseau and, you know, when we get to Rousseau, Rousseau doesn't want the trade-off. He doesn't want... Certainly the Hobbesian idea, although what's funny is, is his idea ends up looking a lot like the Hobbesian idea, only with this curious premise inserted that you don't really know what you want in the first place. So it's like a, <laughs> and it ends up justifying all kinds of very Hobbesian conclusions, actually. Rousseau did. But, but at least on the face of it, he certainly didn't want the Hobbesian um, state of nature uh, solution, solution out of the state of nature. And he didn't also want, he didn't want the Lockean compromise. He didn't want to cut because Liberty is the, is the best, is the, 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 the soul and best and greatest good, right? Then a compromise with your Liberty is always a bad solution to the problem. It's always an unsatisfying solution to this problem of how do you get, how do you maximize security and Liberty? And to, to, to Rousseau, you can never subtract liberty to get security because liberty is that much of a fundamental good. 
And so the only thing that you can do when you can't curtail liberty or freedom like this, right? The only thing you can do is somehow figure out a way to say that you get security if everyone acts according to their best selves, they are also free. And it just so happens that acting according to your best self also means that you coincide with your neighbors such that you generate, you bring into existence, as it were, the common will. And the common will was used, of course, that was basically the idea in the Enlightenment, was that, look, you know, we have this idea of the citizen, you know, and the citizen is just that person who understands, you know, what the, be- the, the best good is for them, Right. And not the king, right? The person, the individual, the citizen. The idea of a citizen came out of the French Revolution. Just the citizen. Doesn't, don't have to be fan, you know, fancy or noble or anything. You're just a citizen. And that person understands then, because they've been liberated, I guess the idea would be that you've been, people have been sort of liberated by the ideas of the Enlightenment. Now we can just think and find out what's rational to do. And then once we find out what's rational to do, Rousseau assures us that it's rational for everyone to do. We have the common will. Let's go kill Louis XVI. And by the way, Marie Antoinette, you got to go, right? So that's, that, that's kind of how that worked with the Enlightenment. But here's, what the, here's how the, the, the paradox of the Enlightenment, right, that was only dimly understood. I mean, there were people who understood it more than other people. There were people who were just completely oblivious of it, like Holbach, who just said like, you know, I Holbach, for instance, would say like, you're just a complete product of material forces. And so, <coughs> you know, pre-prefacing, you know, anthropology, which didn't exist back then, and social science and so on, that which didn't exist back then, he would say, it's just your education and the material conditions of your upbringing and your environment and, you know, uh, how, you know, your material, your, 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 your wealth, where you live, the material conditions that all, that all, including your, you know, the inputs of your education, all this that basically determine what you're going to think. So Holbach would say like, well, because that's true, And also, by the way, I mean, there were other, uh, I think Comte had this view as well, actually. So because that's all true and you're perfectly determined, all we have to do is change the knobs. And then we just, you know, we just like, so in other words, like we can completely reform all the problems in government if we just change the educational system, because that's just a determinant of how everybody thinks. And so when we have people thinking the wrong shit, we just re-educate them. It doesn't matter because you're just a complicated servo mechanism, Right. And, and so, but the problem was, of course, and this is something that Isaiah Berlin points out brilliantly. The problem is, is that who the hell are you? Like, right? So you're just, a, it's like just by your own, I mean, it's this, just this 101 philosophy idea, but it's actually a very powerful idea. And it shows the tension when people try to do this. It's like, look, yeah, but that, that just means you are just parroting a bunch of crap from your quasi- you know, noble place in French society and your venal office that you bought and so on. And you're, you know, 
whatever three-quarter understanding of the basic text of the Enlightenment. That just means you're one of these people. And so all of your prescriptions for everyone else has the same problem that we have to look at you as being, in other words, there's no way out of this. There's no way, the only way out of this is to stand outside of all the determinism and, and call everyone else determ determined, but not you. Because you've got to be the legislator and you can't legislate unless you're in the Rousseau sense connected to rationality and not determined. So this kind of tension between being free because you're rational and in, in, in contact with harmonious rational nature, right? And also being completely determined because something like Newtonian physics and all the other developments in science that were happening at this breakneck pace by the end of the... 1700s right that tension because how can you be totally determined and also totally harmoniously rationally free how does that work and nobody really resolved that and it's still a fundamental problem right i mean we still hear to this day you can still hear sam harris who always i've got i'm gonna not go off about sam harris but one of the things he does is he just takes an old philosophical problem and then he sort of sophistically declares that it's gone away because he's seen it in a different way or there's new science. And it's like, no, it's the same problem. If you're totally determined, then, you know, it's unclear how rational discussion, right? Like Sam Harris on the one hand says like rational discussion is going to solve everything. And by the way, everything you do is determined by the total prior states, you know, Everything you do at T plus one is determined by the, all the, the conditions that held at time T. It's like, okay, well, that doesn't really sound like rationality. So, you know, and there's just no, there's no resolution to that basic problem. I mean, there, there wasn't certainly in the Enlightenment, there was only a dim awareness of it as a problem. And I think it's also true, as Berlin points out, that as long as you have a common enemy, you don't notice the flaw in your thought. And so it's like if you're just looking at the Catholic Church and saying this is just a this is just a a, a cesspool of irrational power grabbing BS, we've got to get rid of the superstition that is just infecting the population with bad ideas. And you see this today. It's like, look, we gotta just if we just get rid of these people that are just thinking these crazy things, everything would be fine. And so as long as you have a common enemy, you don't, you're not going to notice, right? When you're just fighting, we've got to get, we've got to unlock the grip of irrational superstition on the people from religion, right? That was the primary goal of the Enlightenment. And it brought together people like Rousseau, who were really more interested than freedom, than science. And it brought together other people like Condorcet and so on and Condillac and so on, who were really more interested in science, but of course you can't avoid freedom when you're talking politics. And it brought them all together in this common project of let's get out of the dark superstitious era before us. Let's emerge from this cloud of crap, as it were, and start charting this rational course. And so nobody knew that, nobody noticed really while you're fighting this common enemy that you have, a, you have an internal enemy. You don't know what you're talking about yet. How can you be totally determined and yet capable of being totally free? And so one of the, and, and so Rousseau had an answer to this and arguably he affected the course of Western civilization more than any philosopher in modern times. I mean, he really, you can't find 
anywhere in the in modern democracies no footprint of Rousseau. He just is everywhere that you think like every everything every time you turn on the news in the United States, you're going to hear Rousseau, right? Well, if we could just get everyone, it's really simple. If you just knew what was good for you, then everyone would do the same thing. And we would all just, it's just, we got to just, just stop talking about the problem with the, you know, uh, COVID vaccine. Damn it. If we could just, you know, if just, if everybody could just see that this is what's rational and it's like, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of the, the problem with those. Once you get into the details, people go, oh, wait a minute. What are you talking about? It's like, no, I'm not taking any position on that. I'm saying the basic form of these arguments is not let's have a rational discussion. The basic form of these arguments is if you could just connect with what's really real, you would stop talking bullshit. And the truth is like somebody like Burke would say, no, everybody's going to say different things because the truth isn't actually contained in this rational, harmonious whole that we call nature. It's just a metaphysical fiction. There is no such thing as that, that we just commune with and then all wills kind of enter into this general will. It doesn't really work like that. You have a diversity of ideas and they can all be very well developed and rational and sit alongside each other mutually incompatible. That's what's difficult to work to 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 work on that problem. But that didn't emerge with Rousseau's theory and how much of his theory drives the modern the modern era. Uh, it certainly was the impetus the, the pro, it was profoundly the impetus for the French Revolution. There's no question. But um yeah, so returning back to Berlin, one of the things that Berlin made trenchantly, a point that Berlin made trenchantly is every despot effectively that you can ever think of always, there's one move that a despot will make and it's hardly ever, ever the the Thrasymachian idea that might makes right, right? That's hardly ever what the despot says. What the despot almost invariably says is something that like what Rousseau said. Which is not to say that Rousseau was a despot or was in favor of despotism or anything like that. It's just that Rousseau opened the door to make it sort of intellectually respectable to use a type of argument that's actually very suspicious. And the argument is this. You, sir or ma'am, are just mired in irrational bullshit. That's what you're doing in life. I happen to know what you want. You don't, you can't even, you might not even understand what you want because you're so clouded. You keep saying, I want that car. I want that car. You don't actually want the car, Bob, Mary. That's not what you want. What you really want is to be free. And to be free, you have to follow these other rational principles and not be a slave to what's in front of you and your passions and so on. You're never going to be free that way, Bob. So I'm going to help you be free by telling you what to do. That's how it's going to work. I'm going to actually tell you, here's how you organize your life. Here's what you have to do. And then you're going to be more free, right? That's what every despot, like that's what everything, all going all the way back to Marx, who himself wasn't a despot, but gave all this arm, you know, armament to future despots, right? Autoc- autocrats, as it were. Right. Like and, you know, really all the way back to Hegel, it's like this idea that 
somebody can sort of be better positioned to see everything than everyone else. And that might just be tough if you're like, if you're sort of Berkian, you know, or, you know, you can use all sorts of other people, but Burke would probably be a great example of someone who would be extremely skeptical of this. Um, you know, you could, you know, but if you're, if you're disposed to accept the premises of Rousseau's argument, basically that we can, we can see what's really good and what's, what's uh, rational for us and that makes us more free, then, you know, the next step would be like, well, not everybody's seeing this right now. In fact, the masses are kind of keep, I want that car. It would be really nice if we had new drapes, you know, whatever it is, they're focused on temporary and silly things and they're going to live lives that aren't that don't reach this culmination of, of the most freedom that they can have. And then therefore the most happiness they can have, because remember freedom is the best thing. And so what we're going to have to do is basically just stop you from doing what you're naturally doing until you actually see what's really good for you. And the minute you do that, I mean that like, that's the brilliant move, right? Like that every leader says, and it's like, it's a perfect move because once you accept that, framework as it were the leader is not in a situation where you can be he can be morally culpable for coercion because it's not coercion it's actually just helping you realize yourself but of course the problem is and this gets back to the issue with determinism like how does the leader you know it's it's very very likely that the leader is at least as deluded because probably there's some power issue there right and then power is not truth and power is not freedom and power is not all these things. Power is power. It's one of those cloudy, irrational things that the leader will be accusing the masses of clouding your, you know, rational, harmonious, free self. It's like, yeah, you mean like the, you know, bl- you know, the thirst for political power, like something like that might be clouding you. You know, it's like, it's very, it's very likely that the leader, him or herself is not actually what they say they are, which is sort of standing outside the circle and determining it for everyone else. It's just a very convenient position to take if you want or have political power to be able to say, yeah, but I'm not skeptical of my own ability to, you know, pursue a rational and harmonious life. If I were skeptical of that, then I wouldn't be telling everybody else what to do. You know, it's like, and this is kind of like the Lenin, the problem with Lenin. Lenin was a, just a genius. Like, he was a really, really smart guy, but he never saw, and if he did see, he would never allow it to be, to surface, that he was basically just a power-hungry asshole. And so, like, everything that a power-hungry asshole does is not really going to be in the service of whoever, you know, like, it's not really going to work out for everyone else, <laughs> You know, and so the the whole problem with saying like, yeah, you know, we've got to basically, we have to have someone who basically guides people towards their best selves. You know, that whole, that, that has proven disastrous in modern history and probably going all the way back. I mean, certainly we have had virtuous leaders. There are a few examples in China that's like, we really hope that the emperor doesn't die because everything's working great 
and he dedicated his entire life to Confucian principles. But then the leader only serves for 30 years and the next guy or gal you get is like the worst person in the world, right? So that there's, there's the problem of inculcating power in a personality rather than principle. But anyway, the, that, that, that was the original point that Berlin was making, which returning to Rousseau, Rousseau sort of sidestepped that because in Rousseau's, and this is what made the French light the French revolution so beguiling they were trying to get rid of this autocratic force like Louis XVI and the government of France. And they had all kinds of reasons to do it. They were basically going bankrupt. They had taken out huge loans to support the American Revolution, which many people thought the finance minister was out of his mind for doing that. I think it was, it was uh, who was it, Necker or Turgot or Cologne. One of those guys said, yeah, we've got to do it. And... That wasn't it. I mean, there were all kinds of problems. I mean, they, for one, there was just a, it was a case of over-determination, determination actually, with the, the, the solvency of France at that time in, say, uh, 1787 or so. In the spring of 1789, now the revolution was basically July of 89. In the spring of 89, they had a series of, flash floods and really damaging torrential like hailstorms that killed a bunch of their crops that were that they were relying on before that they had this uh historic drought that killed everything so they had just bad luck with nature and then they had just a, a incredible incredibly complex and convoluted system of indirect taxes where you know, if you were if you're in one, they called them departments, which are just like regions of France. If you're in one department and you need to, you're a farmer and you're transporting your wheat um, to another department somewhere, say, and you know you're going up to you know to the cat near the capital or something from south down in Toulouse or something. Every department you go through, that your wheat gets taxed. So just transporting your the product of your your wheat fields, right? Your like your wheat to market if you, you can only sell it locally to, you know, and so you just try trying to do inner, you know, country commerce. You had to just go through this gauntlet of taxation, which was just ridiculous. It was just everybody pulling every out of everybody else's pocket. Um, you had venal offices, which are offices that are basically you buy into them. And then the person basically just sits on them and they don't provide any service. So it's just bloating the government you know, people have titles and they have offices and it's just all cronyism. Yeah, that problem, that problem has never gone away in politics, but it was particularly bad in France. Britain, to some extent, had done a much better job with some of these issues. And they certainly were more comfortable with representative government. Um, and, you know, you, you had other issues. I mean, the, in France, Louis XVI was actually the least of the problem. He was a relatively benign uh you know, good-tempered and well-intentioned monarch, actually, Louis XVI. He was really not a bad guy at all. And um, he, but, you know, and he relied on his ministers to solve these really thorny problems. And one of, one of the things that they did early on, which really caused a major, major ripple effect, was, you know, it was Turgot, actually, the big champion of free markets, 
who basically he tried to make France competitive so that they didn't do they didn't have protective tariffs on exports and imports and so um but you know Britain was just killing France in all kinds of sectors like manufacturing so they would just manufacture all the stuff you know all the the goods that um France needed for you know all kinds of stuff like machinery for farming and you know all, all kinds of stuff and they would just send it over there and then Turgot got rid of all the protective mechanisms to keep France sort of internally solvent and so you know everybody was buying British goods and sh- and shipping um, French money out back up to Britain right and so that was disastrous so they reintroduced that but they were you know but then that of course constricted trade and um, and then they just had stupid like they had all kinds of stupid taxes on the books and one of them was that they had a salt tax which was just ridiculous it was something like uh, like it, uh, the average peasant, which is a big percentage of the population, right? Like there's a lot of people that are just working class people. Peasant has this real kind of middle age connotation, but it just meant they weren't actually indentured to the land. They were they just worked. They just worked. They didn't own anything. They didn't own property. And some of them, the really poor, would actually just work for room and board. Like they just work on the farm so that they could be fed and they didn't die. But you know there were other there were other commoners that actually you know they had they they rented or maybe had a small place but they didn't have a lot of land or they didn't have any land or they wouldn't have been a commoner or a peasant but they in in the real poor case they made just barely enough money to put food on their tables and then the the salt tax they levied a salt tax to help pay for the the war and the other you know, I mean, like France was in debt. I mean, at one, it basically was going bankrupt just prior to the revolution. It was a big reason they went, they revolted is because people were not getting food on their tables. Like people were, they had, you know, the bread wars, right? Like people were actually starving. They were actually like, fuck, I can't, there's not enough to eat. And they would go out in the streets and riot. And that's really bad if you're the king, right? Like it's really bad. But he was really trying to solve the problem. And he had a series of, reforms and they had but they had uh, you know repercussions that were unanticipated as with Turgo and to some extent Necker although Necker who was Turgo's um who followed Turgo was was actually much more uh, he he dialed everything down and he was much more practical about the the reforms but back to the salt tax they would spend like 30% of their income on the tax for the effing salt and you know, people, somebody in somebody when they had they had something called the Assembly of Notables, which was the precursor to the National Assembly. And you know, it was actually the Assembly of Notables was actually convened by Louis the Sixteen, partially in an effort to get more brain power on the on solu- workable solutions for France, and possibly also in a you know, and, and probably also in a partly, I should say, not possibly, partly for that, and then also I think quite pro- partly also because um, they, for a PR reason, they, he, w- he was interested in showing, you know, the various members of his own government, the parliament and so on. And of course the people uh, in the, the various estates, there are three estates. There was the nobility, uh, of course, there were the clergy or the Catholic uh, church members, which you, you can believe that they were very powerful back then as a group, as a class 
or as an estate, as they put it. And then there were the commoners, the third estate. But like he was trying to show all three of the estates, you know, that he was opening up to a discussion, and he it wasn't just this, you know, completely top down rule from Versailles. And so he convened. He was he was instrumental in convening this assembly of notables, which took took from every, uh, you know, from all over France, took basically the notable people, uh, whoever they might be. And in the third estate, you know, you did have commoners, but you also had lawyers and doctors and people like that who performed services and they were educated, but they just weren't nobility and they weren't rich. They worked for their money. And so, you know, but uh, I think it was somebody in the notables who said, who stood up and said, uh, uh, you know, the only thing they can afford is the, the effing salt to put in their you know, if it, even without the tax, the, barely the only thing they can afford is the salt to throw in the pot. They, they can't afford the meat, but you tax the salt so much, now they just have water. Something like that. It was some quote like that. And it was like, yeah, that's kind of right. And people, so there was just all this anger going on with the, the, the financial situation of France. And um, it, 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 de- it definitely didn't help. But you also had... At the same time, you had this cultural movement where, and I think a lot of this also was, uh, Lafayette, for instance, came back from the famous general, right, French general, who was also instrumental in the revolution. He came back from, you know, being overseas and participating in the American Revolution, and he came back full of all these ideas about representative government. And so it was kind of in the air, both from the example of the Americans and also just in Europe and also the example, the increasingly powerful example of England um, that, uh, you know, the, a blood monarchy, uh, the sort that France had that goes back seven centuries to Clovis or something like that. I mean, they have, you know, they have a mon- they have a bloodline actually that went all the way through the Carolingians and, all the way back, I think the first French king was like in the fourth century A.D. or something. It was before there was a France, obviously, but that was it. But so, you know, but it was like, yeah, I mean, somebody's got to stop that train, this blood monarchy thing going. And there's too much representative government in the air. And then, of course, you know, um, Rousseau famously wrote his tract in the 17, his primary work on social inequality in 1750s. And that was that intellectual, that was a tidal wave intellectually um, for a lot of members of uh, pretty much anyone educated in France that participated in what they were in the what the main governing body that ended up happening was something called the National Assembly, which actually had a precedent that had been convened before. uh, like back in 1614 or something. And so there were actually rules for how to do this. And in fact, all of the stuff that, was, that had been done, the machinery of the French Revolution actually was all basically stuff that was understood that could be done in times of distress by the monarchy. And, you know, it was, I mean, Louis XVI, and I'll stop on this, the Enlightenment, because I wanted to just highlight the point that uh, the original point I wanted to highlight about the French Revolution is that, you know, the French France was ripe for 
an insurrection given its insolvency financially and its inability to feed its people. Uh, you know, that was a temporary problem, but two decades of a temporary problem was a pretty bad problem. Um, and so, you know, there's a sense in which that was a, that was a, uh, a fait accompli. However, the intellectual framework within which they were debating was very much informed by this idea that nobody can, that the, that it was the Rousseau idea. It was that, that no government is legitimate unless there's a general will. And the only way to have a general will is to have everyone un, everyone be untethered from arbitrary forms of power, like an autocrat or a monarch or a king. And so, and then there was this idea that if just the citizen could just rationally arrive at both their individual good life and the what would amount to the common will. Now, all of that was complete bullshit, of course. And it was uniquely the French Revolution, not the American Revolution, who showed, which showed how much bullshit that was. Not that the project itself was, you know, it's just that what happened with the French Revolution is it blew itself apart and it just became, you know, it became a bloodbath, basically, which was supposed to be a communing, a harmonious communing with nature and without force or violence, right? Like, that was the idea. And it's like, no, it's, that's not really what happened. It turned out that, that those set of ideas don't sit together on their own. And it turns out that you're never far from arbitrary power and indeed uh, violence. So uh, that's something for another. This is 45 minutes now. I think I'll cut it there.